Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Luke's Look Podcast. I am your humble host, Lucas Berry, joining you once again from beautiful Fayetteville, West Virginia. Wherever you may be and however you may be listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we've got a loaded show for you. Uh, we're talking about the NFL preseason. Week one of the preseason is officially here. Uh, there are NFL games across the country, not just in Canton, Ohio. We'll also visit the coaches poll for college football, which was released last week after the show was released last week. And we will also be going into the trade deadline, the deals that happened around Major League Baseball, or I should say the deals that didn't happen around Major League Baseball. We will also dive into the a preview of the Premier League, which starts this Friday with Liverpool hosting Norwich City uh, live from Anfield. Uh, and the story for this week is a redo, but better, of the story of AFC Wimbledon. We've got a special guest on a Wimbledon fan from 19, since 1977 who has been involved with several Wimbledon podcasts, uh, a Wimbledon podcast, I should say. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but let's start with the big news around the NFL, which is the biggest news, I would say, is that Ezekiel Elliott, the Cowboys running back, is prepared to sit out the entire season uh, with, if he doesn't get his contract that he wants. This is not good for the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have proven one thing in Zeke's career. They need him there to win games. Amari Cooper is great. Having Jason Witten back is great. But you know what is great is even better than that? Having Zeke. It takes a load off of Dak Prescott. It's just so much better as opposed to not having Zeke. If he doesn't report by week one, uh, I would be very worried if I were the Dallas Cowboys. I would be incredibly worried uh, that uh, with this news because if he does not report, the Cowboys are going to, in my opinion, struggle. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier in the offseason and I said, the Cowboys have built themselves something. They have a chance to win that division. Not if Zeke's not there. Of course, the other big holdout is Melvin Gordon of the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, and by the way, no, I'm still not used to saying Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, reports suggested he asked to be traded. And if I'm the Chargers, there's no way on this earth that I let him do that, that I trade him. But I don't think he should get the money that Zeke and Todd Gurley uh, are getting. Or uh, Todd Gurley has and Zeke wants. Todd Gurley, excuse me, Melvin Gordon is a good running back. But with running backs, you're always looking at when are they going to hit that hill? It's always around 30s when running backs start to decline. Unless you're Adrian Peterson, who seems to be ageless. But... I, I think when you look at Melvin Gordon's situation, it's not his team. It, I can make a real case it's Todd Gurley's offense in L.A. I can make a real good case it's Zeke's offense in Dallas. It's not Melvin Gordon's offense in Los Angeles. It just isn't. It's Phillip Rivers' offense. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're not... The focal point of the offense, you don't, you will not get paid that amount of money. You have to be the focal point to have it. 
and he's just not. They've got a lot of other good pieces in that on that team. So I just, to me, it's simple, uh, but I'm not in the contract. I'm not in the negotiation room. I'm not uh, his agent. I'm not him. I'm not going to claim to know everything that's going on. I'm just going to render my opinion. Uh, let's move on to the slate of NFL preseason games. Uh, there are quite a bit. Every team in the league is playing this week. Uh, on Thursday, the Colts are at the Bills. The Jets are at the Giants. The Patriots are at the Lions. The Redskins visit the Browns. The Falcons will visit the Dolphins. The Titans will visit the Eagles. The Ravens will host the Jaguars. Uh, the Panthers will travel to Chicago to take on the Bears. The Texans will be in Green Bay to face the Packers. The aforementioned Chargers will face the Cardinals in Arizona, marking Kyler Murray's debut. And the Broncos, who won the Hall of Fame game, will be visiting the Seattle Seahawks. On Friday, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in the debut of Bruce Arians as head coach, will visit the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the Vikings will pay a visit to the New Orleans Saints. On Saturday, the Bengals will face the Chiefs in Kansas City in Zach Taylor's debut as head coach. The Rams and Raiders will give uh, the fans in Oakland the first in what might be the final uh, season, the first game. And the Cowboys and 49ers will round out the uh, preseason slate on Saturday night in Santa Clara. Of course, the Cowboys are training, have training camp in Oxnard, California, so it just makes sense. Let's move on now to the college football coaches poll, which was, as I mentioned, released last week. Uh, the top 25 reads as follows. Clemson is number one, Alabama's number two, Georgia is number three, Oklahoma's number four, Ohio State number five, number six is LSU, number seven is Michigan, number eight is Florida, number nine is Notre Dame, and number 10 is Texas. Number 11 is Texas A&M, number 12 is Washington, number 13 is Oregon, number 14 is Penn State, number 15 is Utah, number 16 is Auburn, number 17 is Wisconsin, number 18 is UCF, number 19 is Iowa, number 20 is Michigan State, number 21 is Washington State, Syracuse is number 22, Stanford is number 23, number 24 is Iowa State, and rounding out the top 25 is Northwestern. There are, to me... Three things that really stand out when I look at this. Well, there's actually four. Four is that whatever you see in a preseason ranking, make nothing of it. Here's why. Even though I'm about to make something of it as we go on. But it's based on last year or your reputation more than anything. You can make a case that Clemson is far and away the best team in the country. And I wouldn't argue with you. But let's say Alabama had won that, would have won that, uh, title game, and Tua had left. He couldn't, but let's just say he could have. Alabama still would have been the number one team in the country because they won the national championship game. And Clemson's number one because they throttled Alabama in the national championship game. That's why they're number one. So it's more based on reputation. Bear in mind, once we start playing games, all of this preseason stuff means nothing. What matters is what you do on the field. And that's what really... Well, that's we're going to find out a lot about these teams in the first month of the season in non-conference play. But I did point out, I did take notes here, and I made three separate points 
that I looked at as being the biggest things I took away from this uh, top 25 poll. The top four I'm okay with. I don't like Oklahoma because I'm a West Virginia fan. I'm in the Big 12. They've beaten us every single year we've been in the conference. I don't like Oklahoma, period. I'm going to admit that right now. But I have no issue making them the, saying they're the fourth best team in the country. I've got no issue with that. Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma are the four best teams in the country. There's not even a single debate about that. Or at least there shouldn't be. Not to me. But... I wonder how much, how big the gap is between those four and the rest of college football. Because I look at Ohio State. We don't know how Ryan Day is going to do as head coach. We have no idea. We know how he did as interim coach with Urban Meyer uh, being suspended last year. But we have no idea how it will be being his program. We have no idea. Uh, LSU. We don't know how this team is going to look. Yes, they impressed last year. But... They're in the SEC West. They've got Alabama. They've got Auburn. They have, uh, well, that's, the, the SEC West is an interesting little division. It, it really is. But they've got, uh, it's always going to be tough to play in the SEC. They've got some question marks. Michigan has question marks. Remember, they got rolled over uh, by Florida in that bowl game. I, I Look, Harbaugh has done really well there, but this is I think this is a really big year for him. Uh, Notre Dame, they got ruled over by Clemson. How will they bounce back? And then there's Texas. Is Texas really back? They're ranked number 10 in the country to start off the season. That's really big for them, but how big, how, how far back are they? There's not really a question with Alabama. There's not really a question with Clemson or Georgia and Oklahoma. And there, if, and if there are questions, and there are some, but they're not big. Clemson has to replace a good bit of the defensive line. They've got the bodies to do that. Alabama has to find a way to lick its wounds and get off the floor after the national championship game. Nick Saban is their head coach. I think they'll do a pretty darn good job of doing that. I don't have an issue with Alabama. Georgia is supposed to roll through the SEC East. They have... Missouri believes they're going to be good. They're not listed in the top 25. And Florida, the other competitor in that division, has got to replace a lot of guys from a team that won 10 games last year in Dan Bowman's first year on the sideline. We'll see if they take a, a step back like some believe they will. The gap to me in Oklahoma has a new quarterback. But the last time they had a new quarterback replacing a Heisman winner, they replaced with another Heisman winner. And the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. If you're looking at trends, Jalen Hurts will win the Heisman Trophy and go number one to the, in the NFL draft to whoever finishes with the, worst, with the worst record. The numbers suggest that based on recent history. I don't know if that's the case. Trevor Lawrence may have something to say about the Heisman. But that to me is, is the biggest one of the biggest things I looked at when I, when I, see, when I looked at this, uh, this ranking is just how much of a gap is there between the top four and everyone else. Is it really going to be a foregone conclusion as to who makes the playoff? Or is there a legitimate case to be made for someone else sneaking in? Tradition says that someone ranked in the mid middle of the pack in the top 25 
makes a run to the playoff and gets in for the most part. If you're looking at it right now, that's Washington, Oregon, Penn State, Utah, and Auburn, and Wisconsin from 12 to 17. I don't know if there's any team there that's capable of doing that. I just don't. And that leads me to my second point, the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is considered to be the worst Power 5 conference in the country. They haven't produced a playoff uh, team in quite some time. Uh, their championship game was not great last year. And they beat up on each other. Yet the Pac-12 has counted on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 teams in the top 25. Washington 12, Oregon 13, Utah 15, Washington State 21, and Stanford 23. Is this the year the Pac-12 finally gets its stuff together and has a team make a run? Is this the year? Can Washington do it? Can Oregon and Justin Herbert mount the unexpected run? Because, look, it doesn't happen to everyone, but I've seen it happen before. Players come back of their senior season, and what happens? It goes downhill. My people like Utah. There's not a reason not to like Utah. But are they really a playoff contender? Are they going to just run through the Pac-12 and, that, and snatch a spot in the playoff? Well, we'll have to see about that, but it doesn't look like it'll happen. Washington State has to replace Gardner Minshew. Uh, will they be able to do that? I'm willing to bet Mike Leach will find a quarterback that can play his system. But I don't know how well they will be, how, how well they'll be able to, and how good it will, they will be. And Stanford, look. Stanford to me is an interesting case. David Shaw has done a great job there. But is it me or do you kind of feel like Stanford has maybe kind of stagnated? Does it feel like Shaw should have taken his should have taken his chance to go to the NFL and they've gotten and they and Stanford brings in a new uh, head coach in there? I love David Shaw as a coach. I think he's great for college football. But just the way that thing has kind of well, like I said, stagnated. I just don't know if he's really is the man uh, for Palo Alto anymore. Not to say he hasn't done a great job because he has. And if he stays another five, ten years, more power to him. But I'll be interested to see how that's how that thing plays out. The third and final uh, major talking point that I found in the college football playoff, uh, excuse me, coaches poll, is UCF. They don't have Mackenzie Milton as their quarterback. Remember, he got hurt in that horrific leg injury toward the end of last season, and they put up a darn good fight with LSU. But I'll be interested to see. Just how well they play. That's going to be very interesting to me. Is how they bounce back. Aaron Jones is with me. He's a Chelsea fan of how long? Uh, we've been. I've been following Chelsea for about uh, nine years now. Started at the 2010 season. Impressive. I was about that same time with Everton. I think I, my first official time as an Everton fan was late 2009. Uh, I missed the 09 FA Cup final between the two, but. Uh, I technically the year 2009. So let's jump right into this then because I know we've got a lot of things to cover. Uh, think of the situation at Chelsea with the transfer ban and Frank Lampard coming into the club as manager. Okay, so uh, first off, Frank is a, is a club legend. We all know that. So it's, it's, it's kind of been refreshing to, to see this new face in here. And I, th- I know that you and I have discussed 
I wasn't uh, the biggest Maurizio Sarri fan. Um, I wish him nothing but failure at Juventus. Uh, th- that's harsh. I'm, uh, I-, I like Cristiano Ronaldo, so I think he'll he'll work wonders with him. Uh, but as far as Frank Lampard and the current situation at Chelsea go, is uh, I feel pretty optimistic about it. Um, I think that youth is needed and the, the, the trust in youth at Chelsea especially is needed, especially with what people consider our lone army. Um, Tammy Abraham, Mishy Batshuayi, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, the names go on. I'm confident that they will be able to um, kind of prove doubters wrong, um, prove naysayers of our club wrong. And while we won't be up there with the uh, Real Madrid's or the Bayern Munich's of the world, I'm, I'm pretty confident we'll be consistent in the Premier League this year. That's fair. Uh, you, you, and I, you and I had discussed, I, I've long said that the way Chelsea were running before this ban was not sustainable. I've long believed in youth. And speaking of Juventus, Everton just today signed nice Mosey Keane, a 19-year-old. Phenom. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, who wins the league in your mind? I, I really have gone back and forth with this with a few friends and, and just discussing over the summer. I, I, I know this isn't the answer you want to hear, but I do think Liverpool, I think it's their year. Um, I, I believe that City is going to focus more on their European endeavors. Uh, I don't think they're going to focus so much on the Premier League. And I think that Liverpool will take advantage of that. You're right. I didn't want to hear that, but I, I thought about it too, and I tried to be partial, uh, impartial. I try to be fair, but something about Pep Guardiola in don't bet against him. He won. He wanted it by Munich. You can say what you will about La Liga and the Bundesliga, but there's still the league. There's still Pep knows how to win games and win over the course of 38 or 34 games to win the league, and that's why. I think City won the league, but it's just about as close as it was last year. I think it'll get on the final day. I can't see either Liverpool or City going and running away with this thing. It's not going to be like City did two years ago, at least in my mind. So let's keep going down the table then. Who makes top four? Uh, who makes top four? That's a good question. I, as, as you said, you know, I'm confident in Manchester City. Um, I, I do think Liverpool win the league, but it will be close. Manchester City, a close second for me. Um, I'm going to go with Arsenal as much as, 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 as that pains me to say. If they can fix their defensive problems, I'm going to say Arsenal. Um, stick, stick with third. And just being the Chelsea fan and being optimistic, I'm going to go with Chelsea in fourth. That's completely fair. I have City number uh, winning the league, Liverpool second. Spurs, I, I look, you can say what you will about how they run their club, but I love Pochettino as manager. I love Harry Kane. I love the way Spurs have built the club up. Daniel Levy, to me, is one of the best chairmen in the Premier League. And for that reason, and the fact that they still have that new stadium kind of vibe, even though they did play some games last year, their home form I expect to be great, and they can win away from home. I think Spurs come third. And I debated Arsenal or United or Chelsea being fourth. I chose Arsenal for the one reason and one reason only. I love managers in their second and third season. And Unai Emery is in his second. Something about going from a first year like us with Marco Silva, where I expect better from them because they know how to play the game under them. Uh, Unai Emery, of course, had that long uh, Arsene Wenger shadow to kind of cast away from him. I think they've done that to a, to some extent. 
And that's why Arsenal finishing fourth. But it was very close. I flip-flopped between them, Man United, and Chelsea. It wasn't until I finally decided upon them. So for the Europa League positions, where, who did you have in those two? Chelsea fifth, United okay. sixth. Well, at least you have us above United. <laughs> that's not that hard. I, 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 and I debated putting Everton there as well. I really, really did. But I, I, I love it. But I'm always, I'm always very cautious when a teenager signs and has had that much pressure put on him. He was great at Juventus, but he also had Ronaldo, Pablo Dybala, uh, and other players who are just incredible in that team. He's going to be the focal point of the Everton attack. Gilfie Sigurdsson is great. Richarlison is great. But you're mm-hmm. the leading man. It's going to be interesting to see how he holds up over the Premier League season, which is very different from the Italian season. Same number of games, but we all know the Premier League is much tougher. Absolutely. So, well, we'll skip the mid-table mediocrity, and we'll go right down to the uh, bottom end of the table. Who do you think goes I think down? it's a safe bet to say Norwich goes down, don't you? Uh, no. And the reason is I read a lot about them. They were playing beautiful football in the Champions League and the championship. They were scoring goals. I don't know how well that will uh, translate in terms of the number of goals, but their tenacity, I think, will help. Okay. Well, my reasoning is just simply they have yet to consistently prove themselves in the Premier League. They're they're that team that, you you know, as well as I do, just bob back and forth from Premier League to championship, rinse, repeat. Um. That's true. Uh, on top of that, I would I would say this could possibly be Southampton's year to go down. They've been floating around the bottom um, for year for the past few years, really since they lost uh, all of those names: Sadio Mane, Van Dyke to Liverpool, so on. But uh, I, I think this could possibly be Southampton's year to go down. What do you think about that? That's fair. Uh, another one I would mention in the great exodus of Southampton is Ronald Koeman when he left to manage yeah. Everton. Uh, that just tore the team apart. I, that very well could be. Uh, I have Sheffield United in finishing 20th. I just don't. They had a fantastic story coming out from the championship after 12 years. After 12 years, I think it is away from the Premier League. Phil Jagielka played in their last Premier League match, and now he's back. It's been that long, and he carved out a fantastic yeah. Everton career. But I just don't know if they've done enough to secure themselves in the Premier League. Uh, I've got Newcastle finishing 19th. Uh, that club is just a mess. I agree. Mike Ashley has to sell that club at some point. I don't care who it is. I'll buy it if it means keeping them uh, in a reasonable uh, state of state of anything. Really, it, it's crazy. Uh, going back I to have, Sheffield, that Bryce. was that was my third pick. So yes, I, I agree with you on that one completely. Fair enough. Uh, my 18th is Brighton. Uh, they have not done enough to stay up. Chris Hutton, I think, is a fantastic manager who will be difficult to play, replace. They're replacing with Graham Potter, who I believe came from Swansea. And, uh, well, I'm just not a big uh, fan of Graham Potter because I don't really know how much about him. Uh, I just Brighton's time is up in my mind. It, it definitely will be an interesting uh, season, both at the top and at the bottom. Well, I, I, we agree on that. Let's get one more uh, thing for you. What's your storyline to watch in this season? Storyline to watch in this season? I think as a Chelsea fan, it, it obviously has to be how well we react without, you know, our number 10, who Eden Hazard. We just named a new number 10 in William. Uh, to follow this season after a transfer ban, uh, after a club legend taking over, 
um, Captain America on the wing now, Christian Pulisic. So hopefully a, a, a plethora of American fans will be cheering him on at least. Uh, I think Chelsea and I think how they react or how they respond to such a negative offseason. Um, I think that's a story to watch. I also uh, would like to mention Wolves. Uh, I think Wolves are going to I, – I know they have a lot of hype leading into this season, but I, I think they deserve it. I think that Wolves – will be up there with the top six. I, I think that they're going to be contenders just like Everton. That's a completely fair point. You actually led it right into what I was going to say. My storyline is the European race is yeah. wide open for the Europa League. You've got Chelsea, Manchester United, Everton, Wolves, Watford, and Leicester all there making a real run at Europe. That's going to be fascinating. Wolves actually have European competition in the Europa League from finishing seventh and City winning the FA Cup. So it'll be interesting to see how they cope with that. But you're right, they deserve every bit of hype they can get. They have. They had it last year, too, coming up after blitzing the championship. And what do we have here? They're right back at it, charging up. And possibly, I would venture to say they want top four. Uh, everyone should want it, but only four can obviously get it. So we'll see how that storyline to watch is the wide-open European race. Absolutely. Aaron, we thank you so much for your time. We hope to catch up with you soon as the, as the season goes on. And good luck to Chelsea, except for two games uh, against Everton at Stamford Bridge. Well, listen, good Park. luck in your European race as well, my friend. And I, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much, Aaron. See you. I'm joined by Kevin Boris, a member of the Nine Years Podcast team. And I think it's fair to say avid AFC Wimbledon fan. Uh, would that seem fair oh, to you? Yeah, no, I like that. That's good. That's a good description. Yeah, avid is good. Not ardent and avid at the same time. All right, I like that. Uh, so, Kevin, uh, when most people in the U.S. think Wimbledon, they think of the tennis championships, <laughs> yes. and that might be more yep. than fair. But uh, for those of us who follow the beautiful game, uh, there are more clubs than just the ones in the Premier League. Even though I have my own favorite Premier League club, I love uh, the lower leagues good. as well. Uh, particularly AFC Wimbledon. This story, when I first heard about it, jumped out at me. Uh, but this is not the first club in Wimbledon. Can you go back to the original yeah, so FC, if you would, please? It's it's an unusual story twice. And it's the kind of thing that you, if you were writing uh, a script for a TV show or a film about how a football club can you know, unite the community and things go wrong with it and start again, you, you wouldn't get very far with it because it's ridiculous and far-fetched. But it's actually happened twice to us. And I've been there for the long haul. My first game, my first Wimbledon game was in 1977, um, which I realise is about 20 years before you were born. Um, but, yeah, I started going in the 70s. So Wimbledon Football Club was originally formed in 1889 as Wimbledon Old Centrals. And the original idea of the team was it was a, a team of school teachers because there's Wimbledon Cent- Old Central School. Uh, and that was... Um, yeah, 1889. So they worked their way up from pretty much park football in the sort of early part of the 20th century and then joined what was in the Athenian League, which is really low down. So when we restarted in 2002, that was the level that Wimbledon were at in the 1920s. So you had Athenian League eventually working their way up through the war years to the Isthmian League, which is sort of three levels below, four levels below the Football League. Um, and then by that point, the early 60s, they were kind of a bit of a powerhouse of non-league football in those days non-league football was there was only really three leagues in the north northern leagues and then the southern league and the isthmian league there was no 
conference. There was no conference south, conference north. You had to battle your way through. Uh, and eventually, in the in the 50s and 60s, the team that finished top of the Northern League or the Southern League had to go up for, re-ele- for election to the Football League against the four teams who finished bottom of the Football League. And pretty much it was an old school kind of network where the, the teams very, very, very rarely got in. So the current, the teams, it's normally Halifax, Rochdale, Crewe and Southport. It was pretty much always those four and they always got in. And every now and again, every 10, 15 years, a new team would get in. Cambridge got in one year. And there's some other teams that managed to make it, but pretty much it was a closed shop. And the non-league teams, like so Runcorn and Gainsborough and Wimbledon did it, um, Bath City, quite a few teams who really should have been in the Football League, were never voted in. <clears throat> and then um, we got in in 1977, having won the Southern League um, several years, well, I think we won it four years out of five in the early 70s. And what really propelled us to public notice was the FA Cup run in 74-75, when we were, at the time, top of the Southern League. Pretty much, if you imagine... Um, the top of the conference, if you like. So, Billericay or whoever. And then we managed to win 1-0 away at Burnley, who at that point was sixth in the old first division. So they were the sixth best team in England. And we won 1-0 away, the first time a non-league team had ever won away um, at a a top division club. Only happened twice since. 86, Birmingham lost to Altrincham. I think two and a half, three years ago, Lincoln won at Burnley. Only been done three times at Burnley, that it's done them twice. And that kind of propelled us into the public conscience. And then after beating Burnley, we played Leeds United, who were the best, pretty much the best team in Europe at the time. The dirtiest team in Europe, also the best team in Europe, pretty much. Uh, and we managed to draw at Ellen Road. Um, thanks to amazing penalties over by Dickie Guy, who's still now one of our presidents. Uh, and then we lost in the replay 1-0 to an own goal. So, which uh, we played at Crystal Palace's ground, ironically. So that was the kind of what pretty much propelled Wimbledon into football sort of parlance. People knew about us and it wasn't just a tennis. And by that point, the Wombles TV series was kind of popular and people knew about it from that. So we actually adopted a Wombles uh, mascot. Long story about the Wombles. Can't go into that. We can't talk about them because it's copyright issues. However, that's kind of how the story again. I've kind of potted it. I've potted 130 years into two and a half minutes. But that's basically how... Wimbledon's original football club um, came into being. And I always say that I support Wimbledon's football club, apostrophe yes, because you can argue, are we the same club as before? In my opinion, yes. But people say, no, we're not, because we didn't win the FA Cup. Wimbledon did, and they don't exist. However, I support Wimbledon's football club, and that's that's been the case for 42 years. Very well. Uh, I have to admit, one of the big things that brought me to Wimbledon was I'm an Everton fan ah. as well. And that was the first club I ever uh, fell in love with uh, in terms of in this game. So once you get your first club, I don't think you can ever really nope. go back. Agree. But um, they beat Liverpool in the 1988 FA Cup final. Yep. The yep. crazy game. I remember hearing <clears throat> about that, and that's one of the things. When you beat Liverpool, you're automatically endeared to my heart. <laughs> uh, so Brilliant, yeah, um, can tell me a little bit about the crazy game. <laughs> Well, that was a strange time because we got so we got elected to the Football League in 1977. Um, managed to bounce around between the old fourth division and the old third division, now League Two and League One for most of that for the first few years. So up to '83, we went up and down pretty much every year, <clears throat> and then managed to get promoted again out of the old third division. So in 1984, 
So 84-85 season and 85-86 were in Division 2 or now, now the Championship. I managed to get out of that by finishing third, incredibly, that year. But I mean, we were in the what is now the Premiership with the smallest ground. I mean, it's the smallest ground ever to have with top-level football. <clears throat> um, however, they they did it somehow with players that were being paid less than fourth division wages. So you had players playing in what wasn't now the premiership on £150 a week when some of the top players are earning double-figure thousands. Obviously, it's a million and a half a million these days, but in those days, it was incredible. So we did it with players who had been who had left other clubs, been given free transfers, and you wouldn't really pick any of those players necessarily individually as the star players, but it was that team ethic, and it was the spirit of, well, okay, we're a bit of a motley crew of of discards from other clubs, but we're going to, you know, we can't be beaten. And then Wimbledon were not beaten until the final whistle went. So obviously, you know, you always say football's played in the mind. It was massively played in the mind in those days. <clears throat> and they went out onto the pitch thinking they were unbeatable. And if they're, if they're going to be beaten, they've really got to be properly beaten and worked hard against. They're going to be beaten in all aspects of the game. Didn't happen that often. So you're looking at the, it was just like a, band of brothers kind of thing. It's kind of cliched, but that's where it was. So you look at some of the quality of some of those players in the Premier League, probably weren't as good as some of the players we've got now, technically, but they had that never-say-die attitude. <clears throat> and the players have come from the league and proved themselves, and players have been let go by Premier League teams and gone back into non-league. We drag them out of non-league, like Vinnie Jones, who, talent-wise, is not the best footballer in the world, but my God, he managed to make the best out of his talents. If you think of a wasted talent... In football, you can name anyone. Look at, let's say, Mario Balotelli. Not really made the most of his career. But Vinnie Jones was massively less talented than him. He's done brilliantly out of it. Played in the Premiership, played international football. Household name. It's those kind of things that made people sort of sit up and take notice of our team. They're thinking, well, how have they managed to get these people? Where have they come from? And then we had, in those days, we sold those players for a profit. So we get a player like Nigel Winterburn let go by Oxford, let go by Birmingham, about to give up football, go non-league and become an accountant. We pick him up. Within four years, he joins Arsenal, plays for England. <clears throat> and it's just that kind of story that happened time and time again. So the crazy gang ethic was, although some of the antics they got up to, not necessarily overly pleasant. <clears throat> it was just more of a more of an attitude thing. And then this refusing to be beaten. And it's just like a... It's a Band of Brothers. You, if you ever watched the TV program Band of Brothers, that's what it was. But on a football pitch, and not a not a battlefield. I'm not much for uh, for comparisons, but when you were talking about the the way the team was constructed, yeah. it almost seems to compare to Leicester City when they won the league a few years ago. Is that uh, fair? Not really. Only because Leicester were con- compiling players who they only bought for three or four million. Um, and our team in those days was largely free transfers. I mean, our, even when, so okay, when we were in the Premier League, <clears throat> well, the old first division, um, our record transfer fee was £125,000. Um, that stood for years. And then <clears throat> previous one before that was £40,000 in March 1979. So that stood for seven years. So we actually get into the old championship with the record signing of 40,000, we probably didn't have more than 10 or 15 players who'd ever bought for actual money. Even, you know, <clears throat> it's the case now, our record signing is, we believe, in the 70s or £80,000 mark. And we're in a league where Sunderland paid £4 million for a substitute. 
it's the same thing again. That's why the comparisons between our old, the old Wimbledon and the new Wimbledon is still valid because that we're up against it again. And what we did by going from non-league <clears throat> to let's let's call it Premier League for this podcast um, in nine years will be absolutely impossible now because the money is just so different. You've got players in the Premiership on four hundred thousand pound a week. We haven't spent four hundred thousand pounds on players ever. In this and this guy, he's obviously we did in the old days. Players like John Hartson costing seven million pounds, and no one really knew where that money came from. So <clears throat> that's that's the thing. It's the accountability as well. We know as fat as a fan-owned club, <clears throat> we'll talk about how we've managed to do that. But we know where the money normally. <laughs> you've got to know where the money's coming from and where it's going. In the old days, you had no idea how we could afford seven million pounds on a player. Just was impossible. Now we know that it's impossible. So we just don't. It's not. It's not a thought. That's fair. Um, one more thing on the crazy game, just for to tie it for uh, viewers and listeners in the United States. There's an NBCSN uh, uh, pundit, Robbie yes. Earl, uh, is the uh, one of the uh, studio men with Rebecca Lowe as the presenter and either Kyle Martino or Robbie Musto okay. in the studio. Uh, Robbie, Robbie uh, Earl, he was part of the crazy gang, wasn't he? Well, that's a good was question. He, was he, <clears throat> he was not really part of that ethic no he was part of the team he joined us in 1991 from Port Vale one of our best players ever to be honest um was a great player um but no he because the original crazy gang you're looking at the early 80s they weren't called the crazy gang then it wasn't wasn't until 93 that they actually copyrighted it with a logo and actually had to our kit was manufactured by inverted commas the crazy gang in the early 90s but it's people like Alan Cork Steve Galliers Wally Downs Paul Fishenden those kind of players that are to us sort of the heroes that got us out of you know lower league football <clears throat> into the Premier League. That was the actual crazy gang. <clears throat> Wally Downs obviously is our manager now, so it's kind of come full circle. Robbie Earl was a much less of a that's personality-wise. No, you look at someone like Laurie Sanchez called the winning Golden Cup final. Again, not a member of that crazy gang because he just didn't like it. It wasn't his kind of thing. He's not into banter or cutting up people's trousers or letting their tyres down or dumping them in the puddle or setting fire to their new bag. Laurie Sanchez is much more sort of educated, literally, than that. Not his thing. Robbie L didn't really fit into that either, but it didn't really matter because he was the best player we had. So, But that's the other thing, that you look at those players in those days um, and you look at exactly how they managed to get a team together that was actually you know, capable of taking on Man United and Liverpool and Arsenal beating them. Half of those players didn't get on. I mean, John Fashnew and Laurie Sanchez probably haven't spoken since whoever left first in 1994. They did not get on at all, hated each other. There's a lot of lot of unpleasant <clears throat> stuff going on. I spoke to Ian Holloway, a former QPR manager, he played for us in the one season last week, and he hated it, absolutely hated it. He didn't like being bullied. And it was a, basically, if you couldn't take being bullied and having your clothes cut up and your tyres let down, then you just didn't fit in, and he didn't. He didn't like it. So he was shipped out on loan, never came back. But he says that being a Wimbledon player in 1985 turned him into a man. He was 23 at the time, never left home before, completely changed his personality and his character because he had to. If you didn't fit in, you were just cast aside. And it was, it, it, it's the making of you or it can destroy you. I think it would destroy me personally, but some of those people just thrived off it and they still do. Wally Downs is still like that. He's still very, very confrontational and will not let you get away with anything. He's very, very... <laughs> this is unfortunate. Given the choice of Neil Ardley or Wally Downs to manage my team, Wally Downs wins. If I wanted to go out for a cup of tea with one of them, Neil Ardley every time. But that's not what it's about. 
It's about winning and staying up. I, I this was my first uh, season as a as a uh, Don's Trust member. Ah. I bought my membership in in March. Good. And I remember when I knew that Wally had taken over, but I didn't know a whole lot about him. But I remember that charge to stay up on the final yep. day. Uh, that was, I look. I followed Wimbledon for a while, but I just got able to actually buy a Don's Trust membership. So I remember when Neil Ardley was manager, and I'm thinking that we, they would have gone down had Neil stayed. And I don't mean to say say bad about him because I don't know him personally, but. Yeah. But just looking at how things were going, and we'll get to that hmm. final day. I'm culminating to that. But when you mentioned Wally and Neil, I have to go there. You, yes, I would agree with you. It's just we were the, we had no momentum as a team, as a club, off the pitch, on the pitch, and that's why I mentioned you mentioned the Don's Trust. With the Don's Trust elections last year, for the first time for a long time, there was more than, well, there was candidates up against the existing candidates previously unelected, or unopposed, or so delete that unopposed people got in because there was there was four places up for grabs and there was four people standing so they win this time or last year in november there was 11 candidates for four places and the four candidates that won were all new people that won't have been on the board before so the four existing members sadly lost their places so <clears throat> that honestly reflected what was going on on the pitch had we been fifth at that point i don't think I'm not saying they wouldn't have got in the four that got in at all because that's not fair but I think it would have been a bit different because people were very, very, what's the word? They're kind of disillusioned with how things are going on the pitch and off the pitch, all culminating in infighting, not physical, but infighting amongst the fans and whether people wanted Neil to stay or Neil to go, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, not going through it again. But it was a pretty unpleasant time for the club and the fans. <clears throat> and Wally just came in and just just changed it. Whether anybody else could have done that, I don't know, but it was definitely that new manager thing. I'm thinking, well, oh, this is different. It was it was just better. And yet, I don't think we would have stayed up had Neil stayed because he joined Notts County and they went down, sadly. So he didn't have a great year. He almost took two clubs down in the same season, which is pretty unfortunate. But Wally is just... It's not a great thing on your CV, but it's an achievement. But Wally no. is very, very... There's, 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 there's no grey area with him. You either love him or you hate him. And... At the moment, people love him because he's, he's he kept us up. He's an unusual character, and the fact that he's you know he's has some opinions that people don't necessarily agree with. But do you care? Because he kept us up. So you know, I think I'm, I'm prepared to gloss over the shortcomings of his social media campaign or his social media output and some of his other views, and just think, well, he he kept us up. So it it is a results business after I'm all. Let's move on. Let's go back to uh, the story of how we got mm. to the final day uh, of last season. The biggest next thing, at least from what I understand, is the ground share with Crystal Palace at Suffolk yep. Park, and how that and how we got to there, and then eventually to you know where I'm going with the original club being moved to Milton yes. Keynes. Well, at that point, there was a couple of very well-known report, I think one was called the Taylor Report, that had suggested after the Bradford fire in 1985 and then the Liverpool-Hazel uh, disaster, also in 1985, and then the Hillsborough disaster in 89, <clears throat> um, you were looking at our ground of Plough Lane being unsuitable for football, let alone Premier League football. So you look at the grounds, now you go to look at Tottenham's new ground, you know, 
that was it, it's it, you played the same sport there that you played at Plough Lane in the same division. It was it just wasn't wasn't possible. So, <clears throat> 1985, we closed the South Stand, which was made of wood. And if you look down, I used to sit in the South Stand. If you look down the South Stand through the gaps, you just seen piles and piles of rubbish, people smoking and putting their cigarettes down the gap in a wooden stand with rubbish underneath. It was just going to, you know, Bradford would happen all over again. <clears throat> That's what happened to Bradford. Cigarette between the gaps in the floor, wooden stand. Unfortunately, it was a recipe for disaster. So the Taylor Report had suggested that we would be thrown out of the league. We'd have to move ground. No chance of moving ground. Um, the only option by 1991 was share a Crystal Palace. And it was many, many people hated that idea. A lot of people stopped going. I know quite a few people stopped going in 1991 and didn't go again till 2002. I mean, when we have Wimbledon started, uh, I actually did the opposite. I moved to near a Crystal Palace, so it was easy for me to get to. Um, but yeah, so we shared Crystal Palace from 1991 as the only option. The club dies, the club gets moved out of the league, gets relegated or whatever, um, or your ground share. And it was a lesser of many, many evils. <clears throat> Handy for me because I lived there. But um, it, it, it divided people again and we stayed there. We did, we did all right. We stayed up until 2000. We had nine seasons at Pesodos Park staying up. Did quite well in some of them, but the home record was pretty poor. Uh, Crystal Palace's home record was equally poor during that time as well. So, not quite sure what that was about. Um, but there was one season, I think it was 89-90, we won three home games. They won one in the whole season. So, out of, I think it was, yeah, 38 home games. They even been 40 home games. That was the seasons of the numbers changed. I think we, yeah, there was four wins. That would be just completely coincidental. But, <clears throat> um, so we stayed there for nine years as a premiership team. Um, and it alienated people with the rival of Crystal Palace kind of heated up a bit. But largely, it was the only way we could have stayed there. And we ended up, we played Man United, Liverpool, crowd of 30,000, fantastic, 28,000 away fans. But, you know, that was, it was an option and it was the only option we had. So, so by the time we went down in 2000, <clears throat> we'd had three or four years of protest because we knew that the club had, there was moves ahead, to, or moves afoot, to transfer the club to Dublin, build a stadium in Dublin. I spent a week in Dublin for a football magazine called 442, basically chasing after the people who were involved in this, knowing that the owner, Sam Hammam, had been involved in it. And I was basically about a step behind them, but I was reporting on that, finding out exactly what was going on. I, I did some work for the Irish Independent newspaper as well at the time just trying to find out whether this was ever going to happen. It turned out it was illegal because you couldn't pay them in pounds because, anyway, long story. But financially, a tiny, tiny loophole stopped that. And then there was reports of moving to Norway, which is ridiculous. And then the Milton Keynes thing started up. And then there's only, it's then when you start thinking, well, that's that's actually going to be feasible because there's land, it's a new town, mm -hmm. roughly. Mm -hmm. It made it very difficult. You still there? Oh, good, sorry. Yes. I was a strange beeping in my ear. Sorry. I'm not to cut that, sorry. Um, and Milton Keynes things started to become feasible. So by 2000, after we've had three years of protests about not going to Dublin, and then the MK No Way campaign started up, um, it started to think, well, then we got relegated, uh, didn't come even close to getting back in the playoffs for those two seasons. And then 2002, it was announced we were going to Milton Keynes, 28th of May 2002, a, a date any of them would have found never ever forget <clears throat> but it became inevitable because the crowds were getting smaller and smaller we played Sheffield United in a, t a live TV game 
in 2001, and the attendance was just over 2,000, which actually was more than the TV audience, which is the first time ever in football history that the recorded TV audience was smaller than the audience that are actually at the game. But it was then you start to think, this is it. It's all over. And you start to think, well, what will we do now? If it goes under, what happens? And it was the only way we could survive was by starting again. And then <clears throat> you know, the majority, 99% of fans was, are we going to go to Milton Keynes? No. You don't follow. I know it's in America, it's different. You have, French, you have sport franchising. And if you're an Arizona Cardinals fan, you can wake up tomorrow and find out next year they're going to be playing in, I don't know, in, in Manchester. Manchester or Connecticut and then all of a sudden you're the you're the Connecticut Cardinals which actually sounds better but <clears throat> it's a thing I know I know a lot of American people I, I work a lot in the States and sport franchising is something that you just have to live with and I've had it from my friends in Alabama a huge state no professional sports teams but one day you might get one but you might have to nick it from Las Vegas or you might have to steal it from from Miami the Miami Marlins might end up being the Birmingham Marlins, who knows? But in an English sport, just doesn't happen. And it was allowed to happen, and it was an absolute disgrace. It should still never happen, and I hope nobody ever has to go through that again. No other fans of a Plymouth or Exeter end up becoming, a, you know, Norwich Argyle or whatever. It's just, it's, it's a, the whole thing was a complete horror show from <clears throat> start to finish. But what we got out of it, I wouldn't swap for the world now. Quick detour, you mentioned franchising. Uh, there's been rumors of the NFL putting a team in London, and there are several. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, I keep thinking of the irony to where you move a franchise to a country where that simply does not yeah. happen. Uh, that's just the, the irony of that aside. Uh, let's talk about when the club was eventually moved to Milton Keynes and was starting up in 2002. Uh, what happened on Wimbledon Commons? Well, by that point, four people uh, had got together. Mark and Chris and Ivor and Trevor had got together in a pub and we wouldn't have said, right, what do we do now? I am going to Milton Keynes and no one's going to Milton Keynes. We want to start again. And the idea was they put together a an idea to start again. Uh, we don't know what league we'd ever get into, but let's start again. Let's start a new football team in Wimbledon playing in blue and yellow with the word Wimbledon in the title, in the name and see where we get. Um, and the idea really was to start on a Sunday, maybe the Sunday league, just have a Wimbledon team playing at local level. But it was our team, and we have a good few hundred people would probably come and watch. And the only way to get players involved at that point was to hold trials. And the idea was we'd hold trials at Wimbledon Common, just off the A3, uh, dual carriageway. You don't need to know that in America, but it's a large road. It's, it goes from Portsmouth to London. But our tra- old training ground was there. Uh, and trials were held in Wimbledon Common and probably thought maybe 100 people would turn up, maybe less about that. And I believe over 600 people turned up, including currently uh, or current players of, of, of good quality non-league clubs. <clears throat> and from that, it was just we thought, well, that's, that's something, that's a good start. And then we kind of mobilised into, right, there are some accountants involved in our fan group, group fan base, there were journalists there was people who could help us, and within weeks we'd actually got uh, a, a name, and then badge, and then colours, and a kit, and then fans said, "Well, I can, I'll be the kit manufacturer, I'll be the kit sponsor." And then obviously a lot, a lot of work went into. I'm kind of, I'm surmising and shortening the process massively, but fans got involved, fans of fans, friends of fans got involved, and all of a sudden there was a a bona fide football club, and the idea was, well, let's try and get into 
the the Ryman League, what was obviously the old Isthmian League, where we came from originally in the 60s, uh, and that got voted out, sadly. And we know who, I'm not going to go, <laughs> we're not going to go into that. But the original idea in 2002, when we would have moved to Milton Keynes, was that the idea was that there would not be in the wider interests of football for the club to to keep going. So the idea was move again, move to Milton Keynes, start again, change the name, and that was what was put forward and that was approved. So we had that massive kick in the teeth and then the Eastman League, I shan't name the person, although he was called Alan Turvey, decided, no, he had this casting vote, Wimbledon deserve a place in the Ryman League because it would upset too many other Ryman League clubs having 3,000 Wimbledon fans turning up. So the likes of Tutik and Mitchum and Carl Shorten and Sutton apparently didn't like the idea. I'm not too sure that's true. Um, and then <clears throat> I, I didn't play a massive part in this at all, really, but my brother-in-law at the time was the goalkeeping coach at Merstham, who were in the Combined Counties League, and it was suddenly decided, well, how about Combined Counties League? Let's give them a go. Combined Counties League were approached would you like a Wimbledon team in your league and they went oh yes please and that was the end of that and it was it was within days we got accepted to the Seagrave Haulage Combined Counties League so within two years we'd gone from seeing our team play at Old Trafford uh, and Anfield and Stamford Bridge and Villa Park and here we were playing in roped off parks in the Combined Counties League with teams like Sandhurst Town and Cove and Godalming Town and it was great <clears throat> it was it was one of those surreal experiences of watching your team play at Sandhurst Towns Ground, where there was two parks. There were two other games going on elsewhere in, in the in the grounds, tiny little ground. We had to have people stood on hay bales so they could see, um, and we had three thousand fans turn up. Um, and normally their attendance, average attendance, was forty-two, and so we we would we just kind of swamped all these teams. But it, with with affection, they still hold us in affection now. You team that Merston to my brother-in-law's old team they built a brand new clubhouse and resurfaced the pitch entirely from the funds that we brought with us we drank them out of house and home we ate all their sandwiches it was great it was just a completely different way to watch football and you just enjoy it and there was no no cameras there was no pressure there was no diving there was no massive sponsorship there was no foreign players no respect to foreign players it was just football at its grassroots level <clears throat> and then Bizarrely, within nine years, we were in the football league again. Again, I was about to bring that up. We don't. It's still one of those ridiculous stories. The first time going from Southern League to Premier League in nine years was stupid and just ridiculous. And then winning the FA Cup eleven years after being in a non-league team is ridiculous. And we've done it again. It's it's crazy. So to going from formation to football league in nine years was just madness, and nobody expected it. People didn't really want it. Some people didn't really want that. I know fans who, once we got football league, stopped going because it was too much again. It was just, they enjoyed the non-league stuff. They enjoyed going, you know, being welcomed at grounds, and they didn't like the idea of being, you know, the underdog again, starting all over again. But for me, that was our rightful place. We got our rightful place back. We had our football league place stolen in two thousand and two, and we got it back. And uh, now, of course, the club's playing in League mm. One, stayed up. By the skin of their teeth. Let's talk about that. The whole. Let's talk about the the great escape. Sorry, you went dead last season. Let's let's kind of go into yeah. that. The, that. Do you want to talk about the last day of the season? 
Yes, because I have my own story about that, and oh, okay. it's far removed from the football ground, but I'd like to hear what yours was. <clears throat> well, we decided, uh, 11 of us on the podcast team and family members, that we would hire a minibus and drive up, because I just don't think we could stand the tension of driving up on our own. Didn't want to handle the tension of going up on the coach, so we got a minibus together. So we had the Nine Years Podcast Fun Bus, which we hired, and uh, uh, podcast team member Chris Draper was the only one of us who was legally allowed to drive it which is quite funny that I wasn't I have a medical issue so I can't drive more than four people anyway and there were other people who were too young and then people said oh I don't fancy driving all the way out there and driving again what if we lose no we don't think about losing just to tie the minibus just go and enjoy the day and it I say enjoy it's a very strange thing because you think we're five minutes to go we were in Bradford we were watching they were probably one of the worst football matches in history terrible game of football and we knew that the other teams around us were winning south end was somehow beating um being sunderland plymouth were winning everyone was winning around us we just thought well, if we lose this even one nil we're down so we'd go down on goal difference and we had the at one point in the season we had the worst goal difference in league one we managed to stay up on goal difference by virtue of one goal and then bradford get a corner from from a mistake and you just see our, our captain, Will Nightingale, slice it, slice the ball at the near post. That goes in, we relegated. And it was saved. Aaron Ramsdale saved it. He pretty much saved us that from January. That 20-year-old boy from Sheffield who was playing on loan from Bournemouth kept us up. I wouldn't say single-handed, but what a massive... I can't think of any player that's, made, that's had that much of an influence on our season ever. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and he really got it, the whole thing. He just got the whole idea of what we were doing and bought into it. I think he wanted to come back, but he's probably Bournemouth's number two keeper this year. He deserves to be. He'll play for England Monday. I'm happy to put that on a recorded podcast that people are going to listen to. Aaron Ramsdale will play for England one day. And that's so you can hold me, hold that against me. Ten years' time, listen back when he's an England international. I said it here. Anyway, but you just think the tension of that last ten minutes was just horrible, absolutely palpable. And you think it was just a horrible thing to do, a horrible thing to put yourself through. That's our hobby. We paid money to get in. We paid petrol money. We hired a bus. We drove 600 miles there and back. (laughs) And we did it for fun. That's what we do for our enjoyment. It was ridiculous. And that, that, that game was the nearest game well, last Bradford's last game of the season, so it was the game they celebrate or commemorate, if you like, and celebrate, commemorate the Bradford fire from May 1985. And you just think that's that's horrible. That's torturous. You know, the ground burns down. People, 57 people die. Um, and you're putting yourself through this for fun. And it's really odd to sort of to compare the horror we were feeling to the actual horror of the situation those people were in. 34 years before um but it's yeah it was one of the most unenjoyable days of my life at the same time we thoroughly enjoyed it because we stayed up terrible game of football we stay up by one goal and it was just one of those things that you just think why am i doing this why am i putting myself i could just be at home or i could i could be watching cricket or i could be doing something else i could be at the shops I could do something else in my life, but this is what I've chosen to do, to put myself through this torturous four or five hours. And the journey home, we didn't celebrate, really. A couple of people had some alcoholic beverages on the way home, but we just kind of sat there looking out the window thinking, we've done it. How have we done this? It wasn't. People talk about the great escape. It's kind of a nice epithet, and it was. Because in March, we were not, yeah, end of February, we were 10 points adrift. 
and I was I was done. I just thought, well, I said in the podcast, I said in the radio show, we're relegated. I'm looking next season at how do I get to Morecambe? I don't live that far from Crawley. Yeah, it's all right. We'll look at maybe going down isn't a bad thing. Keep sign out squad together and enjoy football again because those last two seasons haven't been hugely fun. To be honest, the football on offer wasn't great. We didn't score. We were the lowest scorers last season. Um, the attacking football wasn't great. It was just a bit difficult to watch. And <laughs> this again is what you do for fun. Um, but yeah, wouldn't swap it now. We stayed up. Um, and it was extraordinary. I think this season we are a bit of a, our first 11, our first choice team is slightly stronger. I don't think the squad is, though. So we could be having this all over again, but you wouldn't swap it because this is what you do. This is the fun. This is what gets you out. I've had a pretty tough year on a personal front. I won't go into why, but I have. <clears throat> um, and the prospect of going with my friends to football matches all over the country on a Saturday afternoon or Tuesday evening is what's kept me going. And that's that's the case for a lot of people. You put your personal problems aside and you just go on a Saturday afternoon or Tuesday evening and watch completely unable to change anything, completely helpless. And that's kind of helps you get through the fact that you can't change anything. I could look back on the issues I've had this year. I could probably have changed some of them. Or I could have been a different person and not got into those situations. However, at football, you just cast all your problems aside and watch 11 total strangers kick a ball around a pitch. And that's basically where you end up enjoying yourself. And that's where you kind of lose all the the problems. And for an hour and a half plus half time, you're just completely helpless and put yourself in that situation and just watch it unfold and try and enjoy it. And that's where I am now. That's the beauty of the game. I've got several things going on uh, like you. I'm not going to get into that. We don't need uh, to. Oh, yes. Two reasons. One, <laughs> yeah. one, you don't have a reason to care. Two, no one else yeah. does. But I'll tell you my final day story and then we'll move on to the last two questions I have. Uh, the local town I'm in uh, had a World War II festival that one of my best friends, who's now my girlfriend, uh, was uh, part of the planning yeah. committee. And she said, you should come up here. And I'm a, I'm a history buff. And I said, sure, I'll go. But I knew the Wimbledon game was on that day. Uh, that game started at 12.30 p.m. here. Yeah. And so I told my friend I'd be up there at 11.30. I was hoping I'd get back before kickoff. That didn't happen. I was leaving the festival in the last three minutes of the match. I didn't have iFollow. I didn't have any ways. I had a scores app. That's what I had. I looked at the League One scores and I went, okay, I know what happens here. And I looked at that score. It was nil-nil. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, here it goes. And I got in my car, and I was going back to my house. I got stopped at a stoplight when all of the games were at full time. I looked at the table, and I went, we're safe. My God, we're safe. And I and unlike you, I celebrated. I chanted, "We are staying up." Say, "We are staying up." And AFC Wimbledon in uh, my car on the way back Excellent. to my house. I was absolutely thrilled, and it's amazing what this sport can do to you. It's absolutely amazing. It's. it's I'm sure other sports do. I'm, I also like cricket. Now, I, I understand. America hasn't really got cricket. I am going to be in Florida in September. I'm going to a baseball game. I'm going to the Tampa Bay Rays, is it, against the Red Sox? I don't care. I'm sorry, I don't get baseball. My my 18-year-old son loves baseball. He loves all the statistics, and he's very, very understanding of the whole game. You appreciate it. I don't want to go. I don't get it. But I do understand that it's a, it's a sport people love, and I, American football the same. don't really get it. Um, but cricket is my other thing, and I did. But that, even England won the Cricket World Cup a couple of weeks ago, 
and I was really pleased, right? I celebrated, but within 15 minutes of the game ending and us lifting the trophy, I was like, okay, that's good, and I moved on. But football affects me. I, I in 2010, I was asked, and I was on a radio TV, radio and TV show, radio show, and I was asked, what would I swap from my club, my club's success, for England to win the 2010 Soccer World Cup? And I said, a goalless draw that meant nothing? And I said, no, 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 no. What we mean is, would you give up my promotion for England to win the World Cup? I said, no, I'll, I'll get the question. My answer is, a goalless draw that means nothing. I'd give up a point that meant nothing. He said, so you would rather Wimbledon win a meaningless league match than England to win the World Cup? And I said, oh, yeah. And they didn't use me in the end because <laughs> they thought I sounded unpatriotic. I said, no, I genuinely mean. I don't, my, my support of the England national team is tiny. If England won the World Cup last year, so we, we beat France in the final, let's say, within half an hour of that game ending, I'd be making tea or doing the washing up or whatever, or reading a book, or watching TV, or whatever, I would be over it. But if we get a good draw, that means we get a point in March, I'm still pleased with that four or five days later. That's that's what it means to me. Anyway, that was... I'm with uh, Kevin Boris, team member of the Nine Years Podcast, of a, an AS Wimbledon podcast. And Kevin, uh, one of the first things that popped out to my mind uh, when I first heard about the AS Wimbledon story is that the club are owned by the supporters. And how does that work? It's interesting because you'd think as a model, it's a brilliant idea, but there's only us, Wickham Wanderers and Exeter City that are owned by fans. And then you can also you can add Barcelona into that because they're also fan owned. <clears throat> but there's a, it's kind of a, it's not a dispute, but if you look at the small print, it's not that, the club is owned by the fans. It's, it's the fact that the club is owned by the trust. So we have an organisation, as you mentioned earlier on, that you're a member of, called the Don's Trust. And that is the organisation that runs the club and, and owns the club. However, not all fans are Don's Trust members. Um, most are, but not all. Um, and oddly, not all Don's Trust members are fans. You don't have to be. Anyone could join the Don's Trust. It's only... 32 $33 of your hard-earned cash. <clears throat> um, and anyone could join. You don't have to support Wimbledon. You can support any club you like uh, and join the Don's Trust because it, it's, it's a, yeah, you're kind of investing, if you like, a very small amount of money into the, in the club. But the way that works is that the fan ownership model was first mooted uh, back in the early 2000s. In fact, it was talked about when we were still Wimbledon FC and still playing at Sellers Park. Um, so the Don's Trust... Uh, is a group of, in this case, I think I think it's just over three thousand fans, um, or three thousand people, uh, and there is a board of nine people who are the Don's Trust board, and they are the ones that <clears throat> implement the policies, make the changes, um, hold the meetings, run working groups. There's all kinds of working groups, as you can imagine, with the new stadium coming up. There's a stadium working group. There's a sustainability working group looking at whether we can use um, electric vehicle charging points and uh, non-plastic cups and all that kind of stuff. It's all important. Um, but basically, yeah, so those nine people are elected by the Don's Trust members to implement what we as a fan base want. It's a good model. It works well. Um, so the, those nine people and the Don's Trust as a whole 
if you like, employ the football club board. There's two. If you ever listen to any Wimbledon podcasts or look at any of our websites or fan sort of, uh, sort of fan sites or whatever you like, message boards, DTB and FCB are the two things that pop up. So DTB is Don Strass board. Um, FCB is the football club board. So that's Joe Palmer, Ivor Heller, David Charles, Mick Buckley. <clears throat> um, the people that actually run the football club as their job. The Don's Trust Board, despite the fact that they, most of them put in 25, 30 hours a week on the Don's Trust Board, it's all entirely voluntary. So our club, despite being in the same division as the likes of Ipswich Town, Sunderland and Portsmouth, are pretty much, on the whole, run by volunteers. Um, so all the people that sell the programmes, man the turnstiles, do the Don's Trust Board stuff, all that kind of policy and paperwork, and it's a lot of work. All those people are volunteers, so every, every season... Normally, the second or third last away game is a volunteers' away game. Uh, the club pay for coaches, uh, match tickets, and a lunch, and everyone who contributes their time, huge amounts of time in some cases, to the club, um, they get taken on a nice trip uh, to the away game. I don't think we've ever won one. I think we've, we've had a couple of draws. We tend to lose that game. Um, but if you look at the pictures on the website of the Don's Trust, or sorry, Don's, of the volunteers' away day, there was a huge amount of people from the people that tend the pitch and the people that move the goalposts, not figuratively, literally move the, the practice posts, to the people who paint the stadium, to the people who do other stuff. I was invited this year because we did the the Don's Trust board elections. We, uh, as an Islanders podcast, we filmed um, interviews with nine of the 11 candidates. The other two couldn't make it. Um, and we that was that counted as, as, as volunteering. We were giving up our time. The people who stand outside the ground selling programmes and some of those tasks I've mentioned are done by the same person. There's quite a few people who do all those things. And they give up huge amounts of their time. And in most cases, they've got full-time jobs as well and families. So it, you can't really underestimate just how much effort the volunteers put into running this club. So it's an unusual model. And there's, I've actually got a, I'm talking to the, one of the guys who runs a, a Queen's Park Rangers podcast because they're looking at how, you know, how can they change how their club is run. And so they're looking at fan ownership as a model. So I'm going to be speaking to them on their podcast soon. It just looks like it's a really obvious way of doing things. And it's fair and it's kind of a, it's cooperative in the nicest possible sense of the word. Um, and it's, it, it works really well for us. But I think we are now at that level where it isn't going to work any higher than this. I don't think you can be a championship club or a premiership club and run off volunteers and supporter-owned club or trust own club I think there's a glass ceiling with how, how practical it is and I think we've probably reached it and I think the new stadium is going to be the, the tipping point and I think maybe fan ownership is going to have to be discussed Wasn't Portsmouth a fan run for a while before a former Disney executive? <laughs> yes, I, I shouldn't laugh at Portsmouth Yes, Portsmouth was owned, owned by the so, fans and the fans sold out to Michael Eisner um, so the fact that people are referred to as the Mickey Mouse Club is actually quite amusing. Um, but yeah, the Portsmouth is a completely different thing. I mean, Portsmouth were going under and fans rescued them, which they did a good job. And then Disney took over. All the all the debts were gone. The fact that they still owed vast amounts of money to vast amounts of people was kind of brushed under the carpet. And it's all all right now. Portsmouth fans were very, oh, you've done a good job. We've done well done. I think we'll run a fan ownership. We'll, we'll do that. We like that model. And then when they sold out, they were very critical of how we'd done it. And you think, well, 
But I think the, the relationship between us and Portsmouth is, as, as fans is not hugely positive. Fair enough. I just, when you mentioned that you didn't think it would go any higher, of course, they are many people's, according to what I've read, people's pick to win yeah. League One and thus win promotion the championships. Yeah. And I don't think that would have happened had they still been. No, they wouldn't have the money. They wouldn't have the money. I mean, if you, if what we're doing now is, is because we're moving to the new stadium, there is a significant shortfall in finances. So we are trying to raise £7 million via a crowdfunding exercise. We're getting there. I think we've raised about £1.6 million so far, something like that. Um, and that is obviously Wimbledon fans first. Own your club, help your club, get it off the ground, get them back to the new stadium. Because the new stadium will have one permanent stand and three, inverted commas, semi-permanent stands to begin with and that kind of stuff. But, as, but it's now open to the public, anybody in the UK can now uh, purchase shares. You can invest if you wanted to. If you had the money, you can invest a million pounds into our club. And that gives you huge amounts of stuff. You get uh, a golf game with Wally Downs. You get your name on the stand. You get you can sponsor a urinal. You can sponsor a beer tap. You can sponsor all kinds of stuff now. Um, but if you live in the States, I'm sadly you can't because you have to be UK-based to do this. We've got quite a few US fans as well as yourself, people like Dan Baker, in the New Jersey, I'm sure, will listen to this. He would love to put some money into the club, but he can't. Not allowed. Under the rules of uh, UK investment, can't do it. Provided my finances kick up, I'd love to, but I, I, I just now was able to get into the Don's Trust. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, there's a, there's a way around it, apparently. Donating a gift to the Don's Trust apparently is possible. But anyway, let's talk about it. Talk about that <laughs> off air. Well, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the new yeah. stadium. Let's talk about that because everywhere I've heard that's kind of been the long-standing goal of the club is to get back to yep. Plough Lane. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's happening, finally. So, um, it's the, the, well, obviously the ground that we used to have from 1920-something to 1991 is now gone. That's now a block of flats. Um, so, a long, long amount of work huge amount of work from Eric Samuelson, ex-chief executive, and his team and the council and Galliard Holmes and various other people have finally got to the point now where we have the stadium. If you look on the website, the stadium is starting to be built. The flats on the all four corners, which of course is helping to pay for it, um, they're being constructed. The, the pitch has been marked out now. We can see where the stands are going. Um, Buckingham Group, who are building the stadium for us, they have given a presentation in early June to the, to the supporters to see, and you can see what, what it looks like. If you go onto the website, afcwimbledon.co.uk, you can see plans of the new stands and what's going to look like and the view and the, color, the seat colours and that kind of stuff. It doesn't look very good. It's just the fact that we are currently short financially and that needs to be covered very quickly. Or you end up going down the route of having to borrow more and more money off the banks. Not a good idea. Because you, you've got to pay it back. <laughs> Obviously, no, we all know loans work, yes. but that's that's the thing. Yes, we can borrow the money, and yes, we can build the stands, and build a stadium, and have a nice new home with blue and yellow seats, and a nice fan zone, and all that kind of stuff, and a name on urinals and beer taps, and all that kind of thing. It's great, but where's the money coming from? It's not currently there. So, obviously, we don't. We owned Kings Meadow for a while. Chelsea Football Club now own Kings Meadows, and they uh, that the money they've spent on that goes towards our new stadium. That's lovely. Galliard Homes, and I think there's, there's a couple of couple of grants as well have gone in. Hence, we can't have 
safe standing or rail seating. It's got to be the plans that were originally put in, or we have to pay back this grant. We can't afford to pay back a grant of a million pounds. So it's it's great. Um, we're all looking forward to moving back. Well, I say we're all. Most people are looking forward to moving back to Powell Lane. It's on the site of the former Wimbledon Greyhound Stadium. It's where the Speedway and the Bangor Racing used to be. <clears throat> but that stadium was decrepit in the extreme. They were, when they knocked it down, they discovered vast amounts of asbestos, hence one of the reasons why it was delayed. And then the Mayor of London, what was Boris Johnson, now our Prime Minister, um, he called in the application, which meant it had to be reviewed and basically so it, it knocked an extra year onto the end of the construction. So we hope to be in. Uh, in time for one one or two uh, pre-season friendlies in, uh, in a year's time. So we should be, if all goes to plan, in that stadium in a year's time. Should. That, that would be great. Uh, speaking, we, we, I've said I'm an Everson fan. They're building a new ground on a Bremley Moor dock. And so it will be really exciting for me to have the two clubs I care the most about in uh, new grounds. Of course, I've never known anything other than Goodison for Everton. I've never known anything other than Kings Meadow for Wimbledon. So it would be great to, if I make it over the UK, go to an Everton match and then yeah. make my way down to to Wimbledon and watch a game in, at Plough Lane. I, would love I don't know when the Everton ground is supposed to be built. I'm actually going to be in Liverpool for the rest of this week, but I don't know when the ground's due to be. I think they're aiming for 2021 oh, or 2022. Um, it's, yeah, it's exciting. For, for, I mean, it's a, it's, I've been going a long time. So by the time this stadium is built, I'll have seen us play at... Plough Lane, Sellers Park, Kings Meadow, and Plough Lane again. So <clears throat> four four different stadiums. Um, but if you're less than less than thirty seven years old, you have probably not seen us play at Plough Lane. Um, I know for a fact. I you probably wouldn't have seen us play at Sellers Park. So for quite a few prominent fans, even members of the Don's Trust board who are younger, much younger than me, they've only seen their club play. At Kings Meadow. So to them, Kings Meadow is home because there's two members of the Don's Trust board are less, well, one's not even 30 and one's the you know, early 30s, have only seen Wimbledon play at Kings Meadow. So for them, it's quite a sad occasion, the fact that we're leaving Kings Meadow. And it kind of upsets them a bit, the fact that we're so, the older ones of us are so looking forward to leaving that ground. It's done us a good job. It served us really, really well and it served its purpose, but we need to move on we cannot make money um from being at king's meadow because we don't earn much out of the grounds it only holds 4700 and all the policing aspects and the all the other costs associated with running a football club and we don't have a way of using the facilities because the facilities aren't great you move into your own stadium that only holds you know, 11 10 or 11 thousand we can have concerts there we can have conference facilities we can do all kinds of stuff and actually earn money from there um <clears throat> which currently we can't do and that's holding us back whether the team on the pitch actually holds us back is another matter, but that's kind of arbitrary in that business sense. So it's interesting. I'm looking forward to moving to this new ground, um, but a lot of people aren't because it, it's like moving away from home. But for me, it, this isn't home. It's never been. It's always been a temporary thing. There's always the idea that at some point we'd move away and at some point we'd get our own ground, and that point's now. <clears throat> so I do understand the younger ones who think, oh, I love Kings better. Well, I, I don't. Because it's too small and it's too cramped and it's a terrible view. Because <clears throat> I'm, I'm only five foot nine, and my friends who I go with are six three, six four, and six five, and my now eighteen year old son is six foot three. So we stand at the back 
of uh, the Rygast stand, which has a one of the worst views in football anywhere. Anyway, but when you stand at the back, you're like watching the football through a letterbox. <clears throat> so I've not seen the far corner to my right in 17 years. Any ball that goes over eight, nine feet in the air, can't see it. So I've, <laughs> I've not seen, I see about a third of each game. because I'm looking at it through a very small slit. It's like watching it in widescreen through a post box. It's not great. So I'm looking forward to seeing the entire match from a seat where I'm going to wander about looking at the view. I can actually, I'm trying to get a good view of the goal and not seeing who scored because there's a bloke in front of me who's six foot four and I'm, I, I'm looking at someone's back for 90 minutes. So I'm actually looking forward to a nice view. One thing else on the stadium and then we'll start to wrap it up. I remember hearing a reading on the <clears throat> Don Strauss website, <clears throat> excuse me, that there was talk of a museum going yes. in somewhere at the new ground. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's great. That's one of the biggest things. I think it's fantastic. So that was mooted again a long time ago, that there should be a museum of some kind. Obviously, we've got all the all the stuff that was that the other team in Buckinghamshire owned, or owned, they took control of, got it back. So the only thing you can be fair to that club in any way, shape or form is the fact that they've given back what's rightfully out. So <clears throat> we've got the FA Cup, we've got the, the replica, we've got the medals, we've got all the... Basically, it was, it was described as repatriation, for quite a bunch. It's a bit of a strong word for it, but that's what it is. <clears throat> so, and Vinnie Jones donated his FA Cup winners, medal, and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, there's a group of guys, Patrick John Lynch and Stuart Young among them, and George Jones from the podcast team who's going to help curate the museum. They've put a lot of effort and a, a lot of their own money into buying up stuff. They go to they search eBay, they go to program fairs and memorabilia fairs and they find stuff all over the world. From, you know, someone in Bulgaria had a, <clears throat> a rosette from the 1963 Amateur Cup final. They buy that and bring it, and they're going to donate it back to, the, back to the club, the museum. So I think the museum's great. Again, looking at the younger, younger people, in the, and I'm, I don't mean that disrespectfully, people in their 20s and even early 30s and teens who have not, don't really know much about our history of our club because it's not there. <clears throat> you go to any other football club and the history is there because they've got the trophy cabinets and they've got, you know, museums or whatever. So we, we were recently in Germany for the pre-season friendly. We went to Kickers Offenbach, the club we played in our second friendly. They've got a lovely family. It's really, really well done. They've got every, a copy or version of every single shirt they've ever had. They've got a copy of the prog a program. I know American sport doesn't do programs, but uh, the match day program from every single game they've ever played since 1903. And they've got basically everything, anything that's got kickers off and back on it and has been a part of that club, they've got in this fan museum. It's fantastic. They've got a bit of a sliding walls. You can pull the walls back and there's shirts and smugs and scarves and autographs and photographs from the 1910s, 1920s. Fantastic stuff. We spent ages in there. And that's what we want from our club. We've got an amazing history. And if you like, we've actually got two amazing histories. We've got 1889, or maybe even three. We've got 1889 to 1977 when we were <clears throat> one of the strongest non-league clubs. And then from 77 to 2002 when we were a great story coming up from non-league <clears throat> into the Premier League, winning the FA Cup, would have played in Europe had it not been for the blanket ban on, the, on English clubs playing in Europe because of what happened in uh, 1985. <clears throat> and then reforming, starting again in our third history. So if, if you like, we've got three lots of history. And all of that will be represented in the in the museum of the club. So I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, 
so yeah, I'm absolutely all for it, and I'm looking forward to 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 moving. And I will look at now. I'm fifty. I'm looking forward to sitting down on a bench, not having to stand up for ninety minutes. <clears throat> That's just me, personally being old. But <clears throat> you know, it's good, and I can get to the ground by tram as well. I'm not going to drive. I can go on the tram. Marvelous. So yeah, it's all it's, it's all heading in a positive direction. What I would think would be the one slight downside is that we've got to be careful that we don't end up with our first league game at the new ground being against Morecambe or Crawley Town or League Two. That's what I'm saying. We need to stay in League One. Yeah. We must stay in League One. You get a nice, lovely friendly against Chelsea or Barcelona to open the, open the ground. And then on Saturday afternoon, oh, Morecambe. All respect to Morecambe. Good club. No problem with them. But that's not that's the least glamorous football team in, in the country. You want it to be Sunderland or Ipswich or Charlton if they come down or, you know, a nice, nice home game on a Saturday afternoon, and not against a team who are also in League Two because it just just takes the edge off it. All that work and have gone down just at the wrong time. The only caveat I would have to opening the new ground is that that club is going down and we're playing in a league above them. Yeah, well, we we've had that for a year, and I think we've kind of we've um, gloried in their poor season. We stayed up, they go down this year. Obviously, they came back up. Rather annoyingly, the last game of the season. Um, genuinely, I'm not saying this in too much of a bridging teeth. I think they will probably finish higher than us. They look like they've got some money from somewhere. They've got some good players, and they've lost a couple of good players, but I think they've got some decent ones in. My prediction this season that we, we would finish 19th, which is one place higher than last time. I think, hate to say this, and uh, I, I think they'll finish top 10. So, but we are actually playing them in the League Cup on Tuesday. So we'll see if the quarters just how much stronger they are than they have been. But they're kind of irrelevant, to be honest. After that 2016, we played Oxford away in October. Um, we won that game. Uh, our only win at Oxford. Um, and that day, we went above them in the league. And that's when I suddenly thought, well, they're not relevant. We're better than them now. Because the moral high ground, we're massively better than them. But in terms of actual ability, that to me made them irrelevant. Because all that, all those in that point, fourteen years of being a football club and trying to get the community behind them and doing that kind of stuff and this charm offensive hadn't worked because they're below us in the league. They still refer to us as a pub team from Kingston, and that's fine. Let them do that. So they've been they've been below us in the league. They've been below us in the in the whole structure of football they've been a division below now they're back on even keel but it's taken them a lot of effort a lot of money a lot of work to get back of us so no I, 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 I my consciousness my conscience does not let me think about them just another club hate them wish they weren't there they caused me a lot of personal pain in the mid 2000s but they're gone now they don't don't care Really, genuinely, I say that. sound like I'm being glib, but I don't really care. I've got far better things to think about, far more important things to think about than them. But it's a fair question because everyone asks me about it. But um, I, as long as we stay up, that's enough for me anyway. Fair enough. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I've wanted to tell the story for a while, and I know I'm an Everton fan as well, but I really do uh, give my support to Wimbledon. Uh, it's, uh, it's something I'm incredibly excited about being a part of and as long as no one's going to judge me for supporting Everton as well 
I'm fine. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. You're okay. One of my friends is a big Everton fan, so no, I'm, I'm, I, I don't mind them. They, they, I, they, I did almost get killed at Goodison Park in 1994, but that's a story for another podcast. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, if, you do, if you do make it to the UK, then let me know and um, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you, you come inside of the home game. We'll get you a check. All right, will do. Thank you so much. No problem. Cheers, Lucas. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much to Aaron Jones and Kevin Boris for joining us. Reminder that you can uh, check out, you can get in touch with the show in a variety of ways. On Facebook, simply search up Luke's Look Podcast. It'll take you right to our page. And on Twitter, look up at Luke's Look Pod. Again, that's Facebook, Luke's Look Podcast, and Twitter, Luke's Look Pod. For all of the updates concerning new episodes and interviews as well as some extra tidbits. Until next week when we meet again, thank you very much for tuning in and I will see you next week.